When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. This episode features a story I encountered by accident, but have wanted to share since I first encountered it, for a number of reasons I believe will become clear as it's told. And now, Samantha. Samantha first showed up on my radar in 2018, when she and I became Facebook friends. Our interactions were incidental. Samantha would comment, post, and like things tied to concerns we had in common. We had both joined a group dedicated to social justice and support for marginalized people. It took a while, but I began to recognize a narrative arising from the bits and pieces I saw on my newsfeed in the posts Samantha made about her personal life. I didn't visit Samantha's page directly, and I rarely saw her posts on my feed. But when I did, they were compelling, relatable, heart-wrenching, and haunting. More than once, I'd gone to bed thinking about her situation. Although we'd never spoken... I reached out to ask if she'd be willing to share her story. It was a big ask, and I talked myself out of it more than once. The story was private, personal, and painful. It also concerned other people she would have to consider. It must have been odd for her to have a relative stranger on Facebook ask for her time. But she agreed to speak to me, and we discussed what might be the best format and whether or not to use real names. I also offered her complete editorial control over every part of the content. I wasn't asking Samantha to let me tell her story. I was inviting Samantha to come on and tell it herself. I was 31 years old and I'd only been back at work from maternity leave for six months. I finished work on a Tuesday afternoon in October 2017. I let my colleagues know that I felt unwell in my stomach so I wouldn't be joining them for our usual Pilates session after work and I went home. I felt quite ill by 6pm and told my husband I was going to bed early but the sick feelings in my stomach turned into abdominal pains. By 9pm, I was experiencing severe pain, similar to when I had gangrenous appendicitis a few years earlier. So we pulled my then 18-month-old son out of his cot where he was sleeping and took him a few streets away to be babysat by my aunt while we headed to the hospital. 
I was seen around midnight. The pain had started subsiding by then though, and the emergency doctor suspected a stomach virus and thought I might be able to go home, but ran some blood tests to check for other things, just in case. The results came back that I was severely anemic. I needed two blood transfusions and a CT scan revealed a mass in my bowel. The next day, a colonoscopy was done and the day after that, the surgeon came around to deliver the news. It was early morning before my mum and husband were allowed to visit. So I was on my own when I first heard that I had cancer. My first words, and I still tear up when I think about it now, were, I have a little boy. My son was 18 months old at the time, and he's four now. I've been doing continuous treatment for advanced terminal colon cancer for the last two and a half years. It was after surgery to remove a third of my colon that I had a PET scan and first met my oncologist. I knew from reading the discharge papers following the surgery that my cancer was at least stage 3C. Before that, we had really been hoping it was only a stage 1 or 2 cancer. The oncologist informed my husband and I that actually I was stage 4. The cancer had spread to blood vessels and through the lymphatic system and many, many lymph nodes running all the way up my aorta and even in my neck were cancerous. We asked him what the prognosis for survival was. He estimated two to five years with treatment and another oncologist we saw for a second opinion said two years. We were told that rarely people have survived much longer than this. His longest living patient in my situation lived 16 years. So we have always had that hope. I knew then that I would do my best to stay alive as long as I could for my son. I had four months of intravenous chemotherapy, which had excellent results where the cancer couldn't be seen anymore on scans. And since then, I've been on an oral dose of chemo to try to maintain that result for as long as possible with scans every few months. It was made clear to me that most stage four patients had a recurrence within eight months of being on the maintenance chemo. It was 14 months after my IV chemo that the cancer came back. Since then, I've had several rounds of radiation to attack new lymph nodes in my abdomen and a tumor in my spine. The cancer keeps returning now. Each scan means more new cancer spots and more treatment. I kept working part-time until February this year through fatigue, nausea, heartburn, aches and pains. The chemo has caused me permanent loss of sensation in my fingertips and a thing called hand and foot syndrome, which results in red, hard, dry skin on the palms and the soles of the feet. It feels like sunburn and at its worst it can blister and ulcerate or crack and bleed 
making it very difficult to walk. I had to stop work mainly due to debilitating fatigue. I'm tired some mornings before I even do anything for the day and I need to nap by the afternoon. As my son gets older, month by month and year by year, I see that he understands more and more about my cancer and that I'm sick and tired a lot of the time because of the medicine that's keeping me alive. My worst fear is me dying and him wailing and sobbing for me, not understanding why I'm gone and why I've left him. Another fear I have is that he won't have any memories of me because he's still so young. I want to pass on my values and my knowledge to him in a way that I know no one else can. So my only goal is to stay alive as long as I can for him. I do get sad when I think of not being there for him on special occasions like school graduations, big birthdays or relationships. He won't really get to know me in the same way he would if I was alive. But I try not to dwell on these things because I think there's no point in letting it eat me up inside and so I try to enjoy my time as much as I can. I try to conserve my energy so that when I have good days I can give my very best to him. I write about us and about myself for him and I've asked my family to take lots of videos of us playing and talking together to show him when I'm gone. My mental health has held up exceptionally well given my circumstances, but recently I had a panic attack thinking, what if I don't have enough videos or photos of us together? I often say that I think my cancer is harder on my family than it is on me. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a terminally ill young spouse and a young child and be faced with the constant prospect hanging in the air of being a single widowed parent. It must feel so scary and so lonely for my husband. He has a history of situational anxiety and depression and my health condition has triggered this again. He needs ongoing counselling and medication for this. So does my mother, who travels for over an hour and a half each way to stay with me for two days every week and help with childcare and housework that I can't do on my own anymore. Doing this for the last two and a half years has really taken a toll on her. She has a number of chronic health conditions and disabilities herself and recently she just got completely burnt out and had to take a break from caring for me. My two sisters, who are each going through their own serious struggles in life at the moment, took over from her for a while. I know my family put on a brave face around me and they cry when I'm not around. My dad works driving trucks in a remote area and thinking about me on long drives makes him really sad and it must get very lonely for him out there. I cannot imagine what it feels like to have this happening to your child. Every day 
I'm glad it's me and not Harlan this is happening to. I just don't know how I would cope if it was him. Cancer turned our lives upside down. My husband Scott and I have been together for 12 years, but we'd been married only two when I was diagnosed. We had plans to try to have more children when Harlan turned two years old and for me to go back to work full-time at some point so that we could buy a bigger house with another bedroom for another child and a playroom for them. Instead, I could never return to work full-time and had to gradually reduce my hours until I got to the point I could no longer work at all. All those plans came to a screeching halt. Before my treatment, a colorectal cancer nurse discussed with me the possibility of doing fertility preservation prior to chemotherapy so that we could possibly have more children at a later date. She helped me get the referral for IVF. I did a course of IVF, going through the daily multiple needles, the blood tests every two days, the egg retrieval day. We have five embryos stored, but as the months and years rolled on and there was no end in sight to treatment, the reality of my terminal prognosis repeatedly hit me and I began to realise how unlikely it would be that I would ever get to have more children. I applied earlier this year for a terminal illness benefit from my insurance. The process took months and was very stressful but we've been given a payout that's allowed me to stop working and still afford our mortgage, as well as do some repairs and renovations to our home that we're now staying in. In support of my application, my oncologist provided me with the letter he wrote after our first meeting back in December 2017. And the letter stated that he didn't think I'd ever get to transfer the embryos we made, but that at the time, he didn't want to take that hope away from me. I cried when I read that. I knew it was probably the case, but seeing it in black and white hit hard. When our friends have more children, I'm always happy for them, but sad for us. My cancer has affected and taken a toll on everyone in my life. And I feel like such a burden at times. I feel like I'm just keeping my own head above water a lot of the time though, and so I'm limited in being able to give them the support that they need also. I feel a lot of guilt that I'm not well enough to do more with Harlan. The days I can't even get out of bed or take him to school, it hits me the hardest. I know that it isn't my fault and that I do deserve help and shouldn't feel this way, but I still do. I treasure the times I do have energy to play with Harlan or take him to the park, our walks to school, reading books together. I try to make the most of those windows of opportunity and focus on the quality, not the quantity. I remind myself how lucky he is to have a village of people raising him I feel so fortunate that Scott and I found each other. I had my career, 
we travelled to Europe, Asia, Russia, America, and I was able to have Harlan all before this happened. I remind myself of how fortunate I am to have done all these things before getting cancer and what an amazing human being Harlan is. He means everything to me and most days I feel I have more than enough. But now and again, I still get sad and angry at the unfairness of it all, that our lives have been tossed to the wind. The last two and a half years, it's been like living in a state of limbo. We never know what new tumours my next scan will bring or what kind of treatment I'll be embarking on next. But we put one foot in front of the other and march on. We make the best of a bad situation. I'd never met Samantha in person, but her story touched me from 10,000 miles away. One day, I expect I'll see a post or get a text from a mutual friend, and I'll think about the things Samantha inspired. I'll think of the unnecessary pain that we cause each other and sometimes ourselves. The anger and the hate and the chaos in the world. I'll contrast it in my mind with a woman whose only goal was love. To hang on tightly to a little boy so he could have her that much longer. I'll think about the mother she was and the mother she never had a chance to be. My heart will break for Harlan. I hope he'll understand how deeply he was loved. I hope he'll grow and be healthy and strong. I hope he'll have a life full of all the things Samantha would have wanted for him. But most of all, I hope he'll see with clarity that when his mother saw her own story was destined for a tragic ending, he became her inspiration to do everything possible to make whatever remained of their story something truly incredible. for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.